This morning we are, uh, we are almost at the end of our series in James and in the wisdom literature overall. Can you guys believe that? Those of you who have been here for the whole thing, it's flown by to me. Almost all year we've been in the wisdom literature. That's sections of the Bible that talk about how to make sense of your life. Sections of the Bible that are, that are aimed at helping you live a good life. Live a life that is paying attention to all things great and small, to all the details that press in on us, and to bring all of those details under the spotlight of God and His Word and His faithfulness, what the Proverbs call the fear of the Lord. We're almost done with the series. Today I'm... Uh, going to take us near the end of chapter 5. Next week, Drew Rains will be preaching from a, a section on prayer at the end of chapter 5. And then the week after that, December 6th, we put a bow on the whole series. Today, though, today we talk about suffering and patience. So, one of the things we've noticed over and over again throughout this series on the wisdom literature is that wisdom is for real life. Wisdom literature is about the nitty-gritty. There's nothing that's too small, that's too narrow, too mundane for God's Word to speak to it in the places that we call the wisdom literature. And a lot of people like that. In a sense, it's, it's attractive to people who may be suspicious that religion is about escaping from, from the things that are real and true, from this life, this world. Some people see religion as a distraction that helps us avoid dealing with the harsh realities of this life. James has been a counter to that sense, to that suspicion. The letter James has been all about this life. But, in a letter that's written all about wisdom, all about living well in this life as it is, we come this morning to a passage that points us beyond this life, to the return of Jesus. This morning, James is going to argue that if we want to live well in this life, if we want to confront what we confront, if we want to experience what happens to us with patience and endurance, then that's going to depend on us having an otherworldly perspective. It all hinges on us being able to lock in on and live in light of the return of Jesus. Now, okay, if, if you're not familiar with Christianity, and I, I just dropped the return of Jesus bomb on you, chances are what you're thinking of are, you know, B-movies, really cheesy, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe these crazy doomsday scenarios that sometimes get forwarded in those emails from your, your aunt that you don't know that well, you know, with the flashing graphics and the multicolored fonts. You're thinking about the escapist tendency to overlook the problems of life now by focusing on some sort of pie-in-the-sky future. The return of Jesus can seem to us as something that's really foreign, really strange and disconnected, from our experience, from what we need now. But in this text, in James 5, 7 to 12, James appeals to the return of Jesus as the key to living 
life well now, specifically to being patient with the things in our lives that are hard now. James is going to argue that the return of Jesus is not a distraction from hard things. Not an excuse to fixate on something that isn't real so that you're avoiding what is real. But it is the key to confronting what is real, what is hard, with wisdom. So, we want to we understand why. Why he, why he believes the return of Jesus is so important. And the text breaks, before I read it, I'll just tell you now. Breaks down in a really simple way. It should be easy for us to follow. Basically, he starts with the claim that we have to be patient until Jesus returns. And then he gives us three examples of the kind of patience that we need to have. That's it. Simple claim, be patient until the Lord returns. And then three examples, be patient like farmers, be patient like prophets, and be patient like Job. And we're going to walk through each of those examples and try to understand how can, we, how can we experience the patience of each of these groups and how does the return of Jesus help us get to that kind of patience with what's hard. Now I'm going to go ahead and throw in a caveat real quick before I read the text. I'm going to read through verse 12. Verse 12 itself is kind of an outlier. It's uh, basically a quote from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that you should let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you shouldn't add oaths to things that you're saying you'll do. And pretty much half, half and half, and the people that I read, they plug that verse either in with what I'm doing today or with what Drew's doing next week. I'm taking the hit and tacking it on to what I'm doing today so that Drew doesn't have to tack it on to what he's doing next week. But it doesn't really, it, it, it's its own thing. It isn't tightly connected with what I'm going to be talking about today, so I'm not going to give it full treatment for the purposes of covering that part of God's word which is true and for us I'll simply say this uh, in saying that we shouldn't make oaths uh, I don't believe there's any reason to, to think that he's saying you shouldn't you know make promises or swear yourself in at a, as a witness in a courtroom or anything like that he's saying you shouldn't need oaths because your word should be true people should expect you to say true things and if you back up what you say with actions that fit what you say, you don't need oaths. There's the point of it. God help us to live in light of it. Now we, re- now we focus in on, on what he says about patience and the return of Jesus. And I'm going to ask you, as I, as I get ready to read from this text, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, in, in honor of God's word. I'm going to read uh, from verse 7 all the way through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes 
and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. You can be seated. Did you notice the three models of patience? That's what we're going to unpack this morning. The first model of patience that James points us to is the patience of a farmer. The patience of a farmer. Do you see that? This is verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? This was an agricultural society that James wrote to. A lot of farmers. And what's more, they, 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 were, they were essential to survival in a way that we can't even imagine in the, in the era of industrialized food. When you can chemically engineer what you eat. They lived or died based on how the crops came in. In that world, James was right to say that the fruit of the earth was precious. The fruit of the earth was life. Everything depended on a good harvest. Back then, there was no government subsidies for farmers. There was no safety net that you could fall into. If the rains didn't come... The crops didn't come. The crops didn't come. People died. Now, that doesn't mean that the farmers just sort of sat back on their heels. The farmers were hard workers. They always have been. They would have had to plow. They would have had to study the weather patterns for, to, to know when the absolute best time to put their seeds in the ground would be. They would have, they would have swapped up what was planted and where to keep the ground fallow, to keep it fruitful. They would maybe even have figured out some sort of irrigation, especially where James is writing to. There wasn't a lot of water there. They would have worked hard. They would have used all their senses, all of their common sense. They would have tried to be wise. But when it comes down to it, James says, the farmer has to wait. The farmer has to be patient. Farmer's got to wait until what he's planted receives the early and the late rains because everything depends on that rainfall. So, it reminds me even of the, this is something that's never changed, right? It reminds me of where I grew up, the, uh, very rural Alabama, a lot of farmers, mostly really, really big farmers now. Small farmers have sort of been taken over little by little by the big guys who buy up their properties and these guys have more control over the things that affect their crops than any other farmers in the history of the world. They've got GPS stuff. They've got high-tech weather devices. They've got machines that can plow, then plant, and then later harvest sections of ground in an afternoon that, would have form- that 100 years ago would have taken teams of men two weeks to do. They can do it in an afternoon. It's incredible what they can control now. But they can't control the rain. And I remember, vividly remember, summers as a child where people lost their entire cotton crops because the rains just didn't come that year. Not quickly enough, not enough to, to, to save what they planted. If you want to be a farmer, what you've got to get used to is depending on things that you can't control. You've got to get used to it and you've got to accept it and wait 
with patience. James is saying, we need the patience of a farmer who puts in the work. They do the best they can, but at the end of the day, they just wait. Who needs that kind of patience? James was writing to people who were probably being persecuted for the things that they believed. They would need that patience. Last week we talked about, we read a, a passage, the, the, the section of the letter leading into what we just read this morning talks about the rich exploiting the poor. Probably the people James were writing to were among the poor who were having their wages held back, whose lives were threatened by injustice and exploitation. They would have needed this patience. Too weak and powerless to overcome those who threatened them, they would have needed it. But, but we need it too. You need it. You need this sort of patience because you can't control the hard things that are already in your life. There's not one of you out there that isn't dissatisfied about something, that isn't disappointed in yourself or in what's become of your life so far, or maybe even a season of despair. All of us have something in our lives right now that's hard, that we would get rid of if we could, but we know we can't, at least not yet. And we don't know how long it'll take for things to change. And all we know is that we can't change it. You need this sort of patience. The patience that waits for the work of God. You need that sort of patience because you've got futures that you can't control. Big proportion of you out there are training for something. Shaka talked about this a few weeks ago in his sermon from James on the future. Our church is full of people who come here just to train. So you're putting in a lot of time trying to get good at something you're probably not very good at yet, all in the hopes that you'll get a job that you can't predict, can't be sure that you'll get. You're still on the front end of a lot of the milestones in life that people work towards and think towards and pray towards and plan towards and work and family and in all the other areas. And it could be easy for you right now to to put up with what you're putting up with in the present because you're putting everything on this future that you've imagined for yourself. But you can't control that future. It doesn't belong to you. You may or may not be able to bring it about. It might not look anything like what you want. You need patience. You need patience maybe because you're dealing with people problems. James goes there in verse 9. He warns his friends... After he's telling them to be patient, establish your hearts, the coming of the Lord is at hand, he warns him, don't grumble against one another. Because he knows that when things are hard, one of the first things that we're all wired up to do is to look around for who we can blame. And honestly, a lot of times we can blame people for stuff. A lot of times we're not totally wrong. And what we point to as an explanation for why our life isn't what we want it to be. James is saying, though, the point isn't other people. Don't grumble against them. Wait for the Lord. The key is not bending them towards your will. The key is the Lord showing up for you with the reins that you need. Be patient like a farmer when people are hard. All of us need it. These are just a few examples. All of us need this kind of patience. And James is saying that the return of the Lord is the key to it. Be patient because the Lord's coming is near. Why? We're getting there. First, the second example of patience. 
We've got to be patient like a farmer who knows he can't control what he depends upon for his life. we just got to wait, accept that we can't control it, and look to him. But then James says you've got to be patient like, like a prophet. That one comes out as his next example down in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, he says, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And he doesn't say anything else about them. So he's writing to people who would know what he's talking about. He's writing to people who would have been schooled on Israel's history. And by this point, the prophets would have been their heroes. These guys were the rock stars of Israel's monarchy age. These guys, these guys were faithful. They, said, they told things like they were. And they stood tall even when everyone around them was hostile. But that's the, here's the kicker. Everyone around them was hostile. The prophets were heroes by the time James wrote this. They were not heroes when they lived. So, so James knew that the people he was writing to would have been familiar with things like the stories of kings and chronicles. Where you got a series of really bad kings, one after another. Bad because they don't trust in God. Because they don't look to Him. Because they forget the covenant that God had made with Israel. Because they look to the, to the idols of their neighbors. Nations that were bigger and maybe seemed more prosperous than them. They figured, if we follow those gods, we'll have what they have. One king after another went that way in Israel's history. And the people, especially when they were prospering, followed in, in behind their kings. The people also worshipped other gods. Prophets, one after another, were speaking words from God to the people saying, Be careful. The covenant's there whether you recognize it or not. He will expose you if you trust in these other gods as more trustworthy than Him. The prophets spoke words from the Lord over and over and they paid dearly for it. They were like, think of the prophets... It's like the, the gnats just buzzing around the ears of the powerful, just annoying them. While they're trying to get more power, while they're trying to gain more wealth, the prophets are just always there, buzzing around their ears, reminding them of things they'd like to forget, telling them, telling them that their, their days are short, that things are not what they seem. They didn't say what people wanted to hear. They spoke the words that God had given them. That's what James reminds us. They spoke in the name of the Lord, not their own name. They staked themselves to God's word, come what may. And what came, more often than not, was horrible. Some of them were killed. This one guy named Zechariah says the word that God gave him, no more than three or four sentences are recorded, stoned on the spot in the presence of the king. Others were thrown into prison. Elijah, one of the most famous, spent much of his life on the run. Jeremiah, another of the famous prophets, he was whipped. He was put into stocks. He was labeled a traitor. He was imprisoned. And in the best case scenario... At the very least, the prophets were rejected outright. They were speaking words that seemed foolish to their peers. They seemed to belong to another time. They seemed outdated and 
ridiculous. And most of these prophets held on to their faith in the things God had said to them, even though they themselves did not live to see what he'd said come to pass. They died, most of them, without seeing the promises fulfilled. Their hearts and their lives belonged to what they couldn't see. They cared more for what God had promised than for what they saw around them, than for what others saw in them. They belonged to God's words. No matter the effect on their life or their reputation. So what is it to be patient like a prophet? James says, you, you as an example of patience, look at the prophets. What are we to take from them? We've got to have our perspective shaped more by what God has said than by what's plausible or customary around us. Like the prophets, we've got to be willing to put up with having convictions, even staking our life to the truthfulness of things that make us seem foolish, laughable to people around us. Maybe even Maybe even things that get us oppressed by people around us. Christians, right now, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are facing death. The hands of ISIS because they are, like the prophets, patiently waiting on God to make good. We aren't likely to face that sort of thing here, but you never know what kind of inconveniences, what kind of injustices we might have to survive because of our faith in Christ. And even, right, even, even if it doesn't come for us from people in power, we've got to recognize we aren't entitled to other people's respect. We've got to be willing to lose out on jobs, to maybe miss out on certain friend groups, to have certain entertainment that's off bounds for us. Certain romantic relationships that we can't pursue. Sexual opportunities that we turn away from. Looking outdated. Foolish. Ridiculous. Because we're patiently waiting on God to prove himself rather than anxiously trying to prove ourselves. This is where the return of Jesus being near comes in. James has cited it a couple of times. He's saying, be patient like the prophets. The Lord is coming. The return of the Lord is near. What's the connection? James is reminding them that that patience and perseverance when people around you are hostile to the things you claim, that that sort of patience comes through clear thinking about a very specific perspective. Clear thinking about where the world is headed. One of the ridiculous, strange things that Christians believe is that Jesus wasn't merely a man. That he was fully man, but also God. Come to us, into our world, into history. That things actually happened to him in history. That he really did die, for example. And that he really didn't stay dead. And that his body is alive right now in a place that we can't see him but isn't going to stay there. 
we actually believe He's coming back. That He will come back into our world, into our vision, into our perspective, and everyone will see Him. And when He comes, He's going to set all things right. Everything that's unjust, every trace of oppression, all the reproach borne by his people who were labeled as fools because they believed him, all of that's going away. And our only hope for being patient like prophets who hold on when everyone around them thinks they're crazy is our perspective on the coming of Jesus as the event that will prove him right. Our confidence in the rightness of the things that God has said, our standard for judging God's words, please, this is it, friends, listen to this. Our standard for judging God's words to us is not whether other people like those words, but whether God delivers on those words. And for that, we just got to wait. The opinions of other people are irrelevant to God's ability to deliver on His promises. So with the prophets, we got to put our money on God. Got to be patient like farmers. Got to be patient like the prophets, even when others are hostile. And finally, we got to be patient like Job. That's the final example James gives us. comes out in verse 11. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, James writes. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you knew much about the story of Job, like the people that James wrote to, they would would have known about this story. If you know much about Job, then this example is actually pretty surprising. The other ones make sense. We can see what's up with the farmers. They can't control what they depend on to live. That takes a kind of patience and a trust in the Lord. We can see what's up with with the prophets. They were surrounded by people who thought they were crazy, but they held on to God's word anyway. And they waited on him to make good. They knew that the value of those words would be measured by God's ability to deliver, not by what other people were saying about those words. But but Job, as an example of patience, there's no question Job had to endure a lot, but in what sense was he patient? Let me give you a little insight on this story, in in case you don't know much about Job. So Job is a righteous man book given to his story in, the, what's, in what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He was a righteous man. He was wise, made a lot of good choices, feared the Lord in everything that he did. And he enjoyed all of the benefits that the book of Proverbs says people should enjoy if they're wise. He was wealthy. He had a great reputation. He had a good, strong family that got along with each other. Always wanted to be spending time together. He had the kind of things we want. And then for no fault of his own, Job loses everything. Job loses everything because 
in scenes that the reader gets to witness but that are lost on Job, we see that God himself decides to take away what Job has. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. Job's best friends tell him that he lost everything because he deserved to lose everything and to accept God's punishment and move on. But Job knew that he couldn't curse God. And Job knew that he wasn't guilty of anything. Not anything that was tied to what he had lost. He knew that neither of those explanations worked. And he also knew, because he believed in God, that what had happened to him wasn't a surprise to God. That God had allowed this. And he had no idea why. So most of the book are these cycles of conversation between Job and his friends and even more between Job and God where he's crying out to him for some sort of answers, where he's asking him, just come, let me, let me appear before you, let me make my case to you, and you tell me what I did wrong, what I did to deserve all this. And some of what Job says really is shaking his fist at God. So, so James has given him as an example of patience, but, but if you read that story, it doesn't come off like patience. Why is Job who protested from the beginning the way that God was treating him, an example of steadfastness or patience in hard things. I think this is what James is getting at. What Job went through didn't make sense to him. Job couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't see why God was doing it. And when God finally does show up, so after after. A long period recorded in this book of, of dialogue, of Job asking, crying out to see God, some sort of in, insight into what's going on with his life. God finally does come to him. He does speak to him. He speaks for several chapters straight to him. But in everything that God says, he says not a word in answer to Job's question. He doesn't give Job anything about why he let these bad things happen to him. He doesn't even reveal to Job the sorts of things that the reader has been seeing all along. The behind the scenes interactions between the evil one and and God and the negotiations over Job and what could be taken from him. Job is just as much in the dark at the end of the book as he was at the beginning of the book. The reason he's an example for us is that he accepts it. He accepts being in the dark. He accepts that God doesn't owe him an explanation for what God is doing in his life, even though his life is falling apart. He's steadfast and he's an example of patience to us because in the end, friends, despite it all, despite losing everything, he accepted that he was not God, that God sees and knows what he can't see, what he can't know. 
And that God's goodness, God's trustworthiness, God's compassion, God's mercy don't depend on my ability to understand Him. Job is an example for us because he is a living, breathing testimony to the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is knowing His place and ours and that they're not the same. And that sometimes that means we don't get to see what's going on. We, were, we, we, we had a preaching series through Job earlier this year, back in the summer. One of the images I came across, look, getting ready for those sermons, maybe you'll remember it. Images for, for what Job illustrates for us, for his, what kind of faith he had. And, yet, and what we come hardwired to want. The image of looking for your lost keys only in the light of a street lamp, because that's where you can see. It's understandable that you'd start there because you can see. But wouldn't it be foolish if you lost your, your keys to only look under the street lamp because you can see there and then to conclude if they're not there that they must not be anywhere because you can't see them? So most of Job is him shaking his fist in the light shown by a very limited street lamp. Based on what he could see in the small area that's illuminated, it makes no sense. And there couldn't be no good reason for me to lose what I've lost. But by the end of that book, by the end of his conversation with God, when God has shown up and spoken to him, Job is willing to acknowledge that there is a world, an infinite world, world of darkness beyond the reach of his light and he's good trusting that darkness to God. If we're going to be able to survive the hard things that all of us are going to have in our lives, we're going to need the patience of Job. And we're going to need to be willing to give up our desire to stand in judgment over what God's doing and focus instead, we're going to need to give up our desire to judge what God's doing in the specifics, in that particular thing that's hard and seems to be senseless. We're going to have to be willing to give up our desire to stand in judgment over what God is doing in that particular Because we connect with and focus instead on what God is doing big picture. This is where James points us in verse 11. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, but he doesn't stop there. He says, you've seen. You've not only heard of the steadfastness of Job who held on when he didn't get an explanation. He says, "You've, you've also seen the purpose of the Lord who is compassionate. And merciful. What's, what's James getting at there? What have we seen? Maybe he's alluding to the fact that at the end of the story of Job, Job gets everything back. God was merciful and compassionate to him. Gave him even more than what he lost. Maybe it's an allusion to that, but I think it's actually more. James is saying, you need to be patient like Job, which means not understanding what's happening to you, but trusting God anyway. 
And he's saying, then he's pointing from the example of Job, who trusted even though he couldn't understand, to what we have seen, which is the purpose of the Lord, who is compassionate and merciful. What have we seen? What is this purpose that we do get to look at? What is this purpose of the Lord that informs the darkness shrouding what we, what we just can't see? We have to see what God is doing overall, what He's working all things toward. What have we seen? We've seen Jesus come for us into our darkness as the light that the darkness couldn't overpower. We've seen Jesus come to us into the silence of God who won't give us answers as the Word made flesh in whom we see His glory revealed. We've seen the promise of peace from the one who laid down his own life. We've seen his love demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've heard his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he died to make promises to us that no one could ever break. A bond, a covenant that wraps us up so that we will never be alone. We've heard his promise that he has gone to prepare a place, a home, a rest for us if we trust him. And we've heard his promise that he'll come again. James says, be patient, steadfast like Job. Because you've seen the purpose of the Lord. Because you've heard him promise that Jesus is coming back. And here's what that promise entails. I'm going to read you a few verses from Revelation chapter 21. This is what James keeps alluding to when he keeps pointing back to the purpose of the Lord, to the return of the Lord, to the patience we can have because he's coming near. Revelation 21 begins like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. What is the purpose of the Lord? Through which we look at the things we don't understand and may never understand. What is it that he is doing in the world? He's preparing a bride. He's preparing her spotless and pure, holy, without blemish. He's getting her ready for the wedding, followed by a feast that will never, ever end. And he is preparing for that day through everything that happens to every one of his children, even when they wish he would take it away. He is working all things, even the hard, the painful things that we don't understand to this purpose, to make us ready for Jesus. And patience comes to us when we give up the need to understand and trust that whatever it is, God's using it to get us ready for this wedding to Jesus. If you want to make sense out of life, if you want to live with wisdom in the world as it is, if you want to live a life that isn't just escapist, full of denial, then you don't have a choice, friends, but to live in light of the return of Jesus. Because only His return, only His being true to that word, can bring meaning out of the lives we're living and hope out of the despair we face. Sometimes in worship we read together from an old catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. It has one of my favorite summaries. It's a question and answer format. One of my favorite summaries of the, of the gospel. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. That all things, all things, things we understand and things we don't, must be subservient to my salvation. That is God's promise to you. That is the key to patience. God help us. Father, this is a patience that comes very hard won in our lives. We don't have it, not like we want it. We can't muster it not on our own, we won't be steadfast unless you hold us up. So help us by your word, by your spirit, 
by the high priest who intercedes for us right now and by your people to be patient until you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.